And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. So kids, I'm kind of glad you're here this morning. Last week, you missed it. You lucked out because we talked about honoring your father and mother and obeying them. And then this week, the commandment is do not murder. But our story is about two brothers who can't get along. So we're going to, for you, we're talking about how to get along with our siblings. But we're going through the Ten Commandments, and we've come to commandment number six, which in the Hebrew, there's a, there's a, a very distinct shift in the way that the commandments are given and elaborated. And one of the key lines coming up through commandments one through five is, is Yahweh, the Lord, your God. And then in commandment number six, it just starts out rapid fire with a couple of commands. And this one is uh, do not murder. And in the Hebrew, it's just two words, two very short words. And in Hebrew, there's eight different words that can cover the idea of killing something, and this word, these two words are very intentionally chosen. So the commandment forbids unlawful killing of human beings, uh, covers things like in our categories like murder, plus elements of manslaughter, uh, where it's uh, somewhat unintentional, but it covers the unjust taking of innocent life. So the key idea here with this command is the sanctity of human life, the preciousness of human life. And you think it's just two short, simple, small words, but once you start pulling on their threads, you can almost unravel everything in the universe. So you look at like the great ethical manuals that have been written throughout church history where they take the Ten Commandments as our ethical guide for how to live a life that loves the Lord with all our heart and then loves our neighbor as ourself. I'm thinking about like Thomas Aquinas' great Middle Ages work or one from contemporary like John Frame, his book on the doctrine of the Christian life where they take each of the commandments and, and show how broad and expansive they are. So this commandment covers things like war, just, unjust war. Is it okay to be a pacifist? What's a conception of war? It covers things like punishment, not just capital punishment, but the motives for deterrence in a justice system is the goal, retribution, reformation, restitution, or restraint. What's the goal of punishment? Uh, prison reform. Under the broad category of protecting life, we're talking about issues like abortion or the obligation to defend the weak and the helpless. Things like, how do you respond to immigration and people who come who are needy, or the length of life. Things like assisted suicide, or euthanasia, or health and safety. Things covering the environment, the, the protection of life is the, the central theme. So two small words that cover a wide terrain. But the fundamental principle is that God is the Lord of life, and life is precious in his sight. You can see in Genesis 1:20, he makes the whole world swarm with living creatures, and he breathes the breath of life into them. And then in Genesis 2, you see God makes man out of, out of the dirt, and makes woman out of man, and breathes life into them. And, and it's symbolized by the tree of, of life that's in the middle of the garden. And then when sin enters in the world, death enters in, and it uh, creates this idea that we'll see in the story of both death and separation. And if you think about it, you, you know, this one, 
You know, the other commandments, like I said last week that uh, maybe the most countercultural command for our current cultural context is the, the joyful submission to authority. Because we're just, we don't like that as Americans. But then I wonder if this one is also equally as countercultural. You know, some say we live in a, uh, we do, we're not even aware of the, the, the culture of death that we're in. The American Psych- Psychological Association. So, all right, what would you guess? We'll do a little trivia. So here, kids, we'll do a little trivia. So the American Psychological Association says the average child, by the time they have finished fifth grade, guess how many murders they have witnessed through various forms of media. Anybody want to risk a guess? 11,000? Oh, that's good. That's high. I mean, that's close. 12, 8,000. A fifth grade witnessed 8,000 murders. Guess how many, what do they estimate acts of on-screen violence? Estimated around 100,000 acts of on-screen violence. By the time they've graduated fifth grade, film cricket, uh, critic Michael Medved uh, has talked about something he's noticed, and he started noticing like movies like uh, Saw, so this, this unique fascination that's become more and more prevalent in the movies that he uh, reviews is this sadistic humor of this strange merging of both uh, misery and kind of mirth, this, this joy. So it's, just, it's strange. Retired military psychologist, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, who his entire career was to help soldiers acclimate to the natural reluctance you would have to taking a life on the battlefield. He said that increasingly he had less and less to do because he felt like they came in desensitized through all the different things. It's interesting you can look at like gun violence. I forgot to bring the chart this morning, but you can look at the rage and gun violence injuries. You kind of go, there was like this spike in the 60s and it kind of drops. Then another spike in 1992. That's what happened in... 92, then it drops again and kind of stables out all the way till 2014. And then in 2014, there's just this exponential shot. Uh, it just shoots up. You think, what's, what's happening what's, when the, in this culture? And I think to understand this, I think a place we're going to go this morning is we're going to go look at that first murder in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. And it's important to kind of get the setting right as we think about this, because the first sin in Genesis chapter 3, it unleashes this flood of misery into the human race and the consequences for humanity in general, and every person in particular, is that now we are burdened with this guilt, but also defiled, and we're subject to these processes of decay and brokenness. So all right, our, our text is Genesis 4, but we need to see it in the, the bigger context of Genesis 1 through 11. This is one kind of story, and it, it's helpful to think of when God created the world. You know, here in Trinity, we love things in threes. So even like our meat today, we have brisket, ribs, and chicken. It's like the holy trinity of smoked meat. And even when God created the world, he created it like a three-tiered universe where you have heavens, the earth, and under the earth. And on the earth, there's these three tier, there's three realms. Our world is a three-tier world, three environments. You have the garden. 
then you have Eden, and then you have the world, and each of those environments correspond to a key relationship about, about life. So in the garden, that corresponds with the sanctuary. That's where God comes down, and he can dwell with his people in the garden. And then you have Eden, which is the land that's the gift of God to the, the people. And the land is a place of, of family and order, and they're meant to work. They're meant to cultivate it and to bring out the blessings and the fruitfulness in the land so that that then spreads to the entire globe out into the world. So three locations, and each of those locations represent a relationship that we have. In the garden sanctuary, our relationship with God, kind of in the land is our <coughs> home relationship with family and work, and then going out into the world eventually becomes the location of our civic life, our politics, our communal life. And what you see in Genesis 1 through 11 is a series of three different falls. There's not one fall, there's three of them. The first one is Adam and Eve in the garden, and so they can get exiled out of the garden and a cherubim with a flaming sword is put. We can't come into the sanctuary anymore to be where God dwells and walks with us. And then the next fall is Genesis chapter 4 where Cain gets exiled from Eden, the first gift of the land. And then from 5 all the way through 11, you see the breakdown of the, of the world. And so the question is once sin comes into then the garden, into Eden, then out into the world, it pollutes and stains the world in such a way that the question is now what can wash this place clean again? And part of the drama is that even a cataclysmic worldwide flood can't wash this stain clean. So we're here in Genesis chapter 4. And we're looking at, all right, what can God do to wash this stain clean? And so much beautiful literary skill that Moses tells the story. And there's so many details that are not given. It's incredibly skillful, but it's almost maddeningly selective. Because there's so many things you would want to know. But one thing, what he does is he, there's all these variations of the number seven. So like Abel's name is used seven times. The word brother is used seven times. Cain's name is used 14 to give the two panels of life with the brother, the fall, then life afterwards. You get to the end of chapter 4, and God's name has been used 70 times. And so let's pick up the story. We're, we're going to go through to, uh, verse 15 in chapter 4. And I'm going to be reading from a mismatch of the New American Standard and the ESV, and then just words that pop into my head. So if you're trying to track, you're like, what? Mine doesn't say that. It's because there's certain words I want to really highlight. So now the man, now this, is, this is a mysterious word. You know, Adam is a, a play on ground, dirt, Adam. And so you, it's hard in the text to get the, the emphasis. <laughs> so is this Adam, like Adam, or is it dirt, the ground? They're just man in general. Are we talking about specific Adam or man in general? Now, the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have, I have gotten, I have received, I have produced, I have created a, a man. Is it, wait, produced, a, is, a, is it Adam? You produced an Adam. No, that, that's your husband. I produced a man. What? I produced a man with the help of of Yahweh, the Lord. 
And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was the cultivator of the ground. So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to, to Yahweh, the Lord, of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord, Yahweh, had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, furious, enraged, and his face fell. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will not your face be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching, it's lying, it's, it's lurking, it's crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, to to devour you, desire, control, to snatch. Its desire is for you, but you must master it, must rule over it. Then Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. and It happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now cursed are you from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagabond, a vagrant, a wanderer. On the earth. And Cain said to Yahweh, the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a a wanderer, a vagrant, I will be a sojourner on the earth, and it'll be that whoever finds me will, will kill me. So Yahweh said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain so that no one who found him would strike him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right, so let's go back as we kind of get the setting. It opens with this exuberant, joyful optimism of the birth of a child. And we're coming off the curses from Adam and Eve and the serpent. And now labor is going to be difficult. But this is a strange song. Eve breaks out into song when the first child comes. But it's very strange. It's the only place in the entire Bible where a baby is referred to as a, a man. And it's a strange, like this, I've, I got a son of, of man and there's just subtle hints, these little threads that you can start putting on. Because in one sense, she calls him, I, I, I've gotten another Adam. There's this second Adam. And one of the questions here is, what is, what is Eve doing? I actually think this is a statement of faith. And she's looking to the promise of the Lord to send another seed to, to crush the serpent and to, to, to restore what the first Adam lost. But it is interesting 
Some commentators note all throughout the book of Genesis, one of the themes is parental favoritism and the destruction that causes on families. You can see it in Abraham with you know, Isaac and Ishmael. You can see it in Jacob, you know, uh, Jacob and Esau. You can see it as it runs through and Jacob's children with Joseph. And some say, I wonder if there's some of that here. You know, when Cain is born, she sings this song celebrating Cain. And then what does Abel get? Just a little side note. And then their names, Cain's name means productive. He's been produced. He's, he's a maker who makes. He, he produces. And then Abel's name means breath, fleeting. You wonder, was that his name originally? Or did they look back on his life? It's the root of the same word in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity. All its vanities. Hevel, hevel, Abel. Abel, it's all vanity, or, or it's fleeting. It's like a vapor. So you wonder, what's happening here? You know, was, was Cain really her, her favorite? Or is this a song of, of faith? There's a second Adam who's coming. Regardless, one of the key themes is that the devastation of sin for Adam and Eve, they don't have to wait for their own death to experience the devastation it brings. One of the sad things, we won't get to the end, but by the end of this story, uh, Eve as a mother has lost two sons, not just one. One son dies, and the other one gets outcast and exiled, and she loses both of them. And you know, in, in times of sorrow and grief where tragedy strikes a family, it's very possible one of the things Satan wants to do is if you go through the tragedy of losing one, he wants to take them all. Reminded of the story of Stephen Curtis Chapman, if you know part of his story, where he had, um, you know, they had a, a family tragedy where one of the older children kind of rushing in the car and accidentally backed over one of the younger children. And instantly he knew that he was in danger of losing multiple children. And even as they were taking the one to the hospital, he grabbed the other and said, this is not your fault. He said, I won't lose both of you. And that's one thing sin wants to do. And try to, it's, so Eve, you think from her perspective, she's going to lose two children out of this. But the story is told from Cain's perspective, and he's the main character so what I want to do is just take a couple lessons that we can learn from Cain about the, the sin, the danger, his failure. So first lesson is that the danger that Cain was in is the same danger we're in. Do you notice verse 7? Verse 7, sin is, it's crouching at your door, waiting. And so the image here that he gives them is sin is the kind of thing, it's like this, this, this predator, it's like this tiger that's waiting to crouch and pounce. And there's two things about this predator. It is hungry and it's hiding. You can't see it. It's hungry. And part of the things about this predator is that if you feed it, it's going to grow in power and strength. You know, I just wonder about there's this unique pro progression when God confronts, when God confronts Adam, confronts Eve, now he confronts Cain. And I wonder, is there a development? Adam and Eve are at least somewhat sheepish when God confronts them. And I mean, they're, it's almost like they're heads down and they're pointing fingers. Well, don't look at me. It was the woman you gave me. Well, don't look at me. It was the, the serpent. But there, there's almost this sheepishness. Cain is just, it's almost hard to believe how he's talking back to God. It's like, excuse me? 
Do you know who you're speaking to? I mean, you know better than I do. You're seeing him. How could you speak this way? So has sin entered in and caused this hardening? You know, it's hungry. If you feed it, it'll grow. And it wants to devour you. Recently, a month or two ago, I was uh, playing golf at Royal St. Cloud, and I got paired up with this delightful couple from Ottawa who were down spending the month in, in Kissimmee. And uh, one of the, the gifts of playing golf at Royal St. Cloud is it's a cheap course, and so it's one of the most crowded golf courses in central Florida. So it gives you all types of opportunities to enjoy the scenery and contemplate your life. And while we were contemplating life on one hole, we go, so you have multiple tee boxes. We were sitting in the back. I was waiting to tee off. And then at the, uh, the red tee box, which is the ladies' tee box, we were sitting there, and about, uh, there's two marshes, that this, and uh, about an eight-foot alligator just starts sauntering right across the tee box. And I, know, I don't think alligators have emotion, but I swear it looked at us just kind of smiled and just kind of hung out right there where she has to go, like, hit the golf ball. And she starts to panic and starts scrambling and kind of throwing her husband in between her and, and the gator and, and looks at me and goes, is it dangerous? And I guess she thought, you know, I'm the alligator expert because I live here in Florida. And she said, is it dangerous? And, you know, sometimes I wonder the best way to respond to people's questions that drive Cynthia crazy. And uh, I said, yes. <laughs> it's an alligator. <laughs> yes, it is dangerous. And, uh, and then uh, started to read the room, and that didn't settle her. And she said, should we be scared? <laughs> and when I, you know, moments of tension, my natural reaction is to revert to humor. It's kind of like my coping mechanism. And so I started laughing and said, only if he's hungry. That didn't help alleviate her fears. And she says, how do you know if he's hungry? Does he, he looks hungry to me. Uh, I don't know. Only if he's hungry. Uh, there is a predator outside your heart's door, your soul's door. And yes, it is dangerous. And yes, it is hungry. And it does want to devour you. You think, all right, how would I respond if I knew there was a spiritual, I, mean, I can't really see it, but this, this threat that was ever-present in any moment, it would want to take my life. I mean, we got to see in 2020 how we as a society respond to such things. But it's there, and it, it's hungry, but the, the sinister thing is it's also hiding. It's hiding, and the, the, the worst things in your life, the things that are really going to destroy you and those around you are things you're least likely to admit because sin has such a power in us to help us to deny and rationalize. And we can come up with all types of words to cloak what's really going on in our hearts. We can say, you know, I'm just a, I'm not a workaholic. I'm just driven. I'm not a master manipulator of people. I just freely share my opinions. I'm not withdrawn and detached. I'm just tired. I'm not image obsessed. I'm just being a good steward of my good grooming. 
That's why you need people who love you enough to speak into your life because sin is seeking to master you, but it's hiding in so many ways you can't see it. That's why things like small community, being in community is so important. We need people to love us enough to tell us the truth. So it's hiding and it's hungry. And so the danger that Cain is in is the same danger we're all in. We all face the same foe. But then it gets, in some sense, even more challenging because the danger that was already in him is already in us. Look at verse 3 through 7. I love God's questions. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And it's such a brilliant narrative is exposing two types of people in the setting. What I think is happening here, the setting, is the setting is worship. And so remember, they've, they can't come into the garden any longer. That garden it will be reflected in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle and the temple, because the sanctuary is guarded by the cherubim and the holy of holies on the ark. You have two cherubim. The holy of holies is surrounded with cherubim all on the wall. They're guarding it, so you can't come in. Only the high priest can come. And then the outer area, now he comes with sacrifices and offerings. And so Cain, I think Cain and Abel both represent uh, uh, their, uh, people and they're coming to a worship service. But as God unpacks the law, there's three types of offerings to come into God's presence now because of sin. The way we unpack it, like in your bulletin, we have the three words, the in, up, and around. There's offerings, guilt offerings, atonement offerings, offerings that bring you into God's presence. There's offerings, ascension offerings, whole offerings, burnt offerings that bring you up to God's presence. And then there's offerings that bring you with God at his table to feast. This is the good ones. This is the point of the offerings. The point is to come to God's table and feast. And the festival offerings are the offerings of, of the fatted calf, the bull. This is the ones you sacrifice and you eat together. It's the barbecue. And then the grain and the wine. So wine, bread, barbecue, these are the staples of festive celebration when you come into God's presence. And so what I think has happened is Abel has brought the meat, Cain's responsibility was the bread and wine, and evidently Abel comes with this feast, something worthy of the Lord, the first fruits and the fat, just notice that, ladies, it's the fat that gets given to the gods because it's the best part. So think about that when you pick your piece of brisket later. God gets the best part. We get the, the best parts come to him. Cain's responsibility in essence is the bread and wine, and he comes with something that disappoints everyone. So he must have shown up with like some Zephyr Hills water and some saltine crackers. And they're like, is that it? <laughs> like that, that's what you brought? I mean, could, I mean, can't we at least get some bubbly water or maybe some lemon squeezed in there? Just regular. And so his face follows God has regard says now Hebrews 11 helps us understand what's going on here because it says that by faith Abel, Abel brought his offering knowing that it's, it's knows he can't come into God's presence just on his own now sacrifice is required he doesn't know what that is but he knows to bring that and Cain doesn't come with with faith and his lack of faith didn't mean he didn't believe God existed he's talking to God he knows he exists it's something something else and Abel brought the best of his animals, and what Cain brought, I think it's revealing that there's something in his heart where he's stingy and he's self-absorbed. 
And then you can see in his reaction, because it reveals his attitude, he's angry. The word there is furious. He fumes with rage. The next time this word is used in Genesis is with Simeon and Levi after they find out that their sister Dinah has been raped. And that's how they, they, they're, they're enraged by what's happening. And then notice God's questions. I love the contrast between God who comes in grace and mercy and the, the sinister snake, Satan, who's waiting, crouching sin at the door to devour. God comes to him. God questions. God is trying to uncover. He's not going to let Cain refuse to look inside. Grace is waiting, knocking at the door, almost knocking at the door of Cain's heart to heal him. But sin is knocking, waiting at the door to hurt him. So God comes graciously. He's not scolding or not trying to trap him. He's trying to draw out this admission of guilt to confess. And he gives them two incredible gifts. He gives them a warning. Sin is dangerous. It's looking to destroy you. Wake up. And then he gives them this beautiful image so he can conceptualize and make sense of what's happening. And it's worth just pausing the way God interacts with him with these questions. He wants him to be reflective. The first step is to examine his own heart and his own emotions. and says, why are you angry? So even think about anger. Anger often is a secondary emotion that's a revealing something else underneath. And he wants him to be reflective. And you know, we're not very good at this. We're very good at looking at others and asking, why are you angry? We're not good at looking at ourselves. You know, it's not uncommon for grandparents who watch TV all day to complain about the kids who are playing video games all day. Or parents to complain about how much screen time their kids have when they're on their screens twice as much. We're just not good at this. The idea of analyzing your anger because it's revealing what's really going on in your heart. So just take a moment and ask yourself, what was the last thing I really got mad at? What was the last thing that made you angry? And then in that moment, what were you defending? You know, every act of anger is an act of judgment. You're rendering judgment on a person or a situation or a circumstance and so how clear-eyed, clear how, how sober was your rendering of judgment? Like maybe you got angry and you stubbed your toe on the dresser and you cursed the furniture makers. Or you lose something, you get angry, or you get stuck in traffic, or the kids don't do what you Why are you angry in that moment? Sometimes it's right and good. It's not wrong to get angry. God, he is uh, loving and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But often what's underneath our anger is this demand for my will to be done. And when it's not, anger is fueled. But that seed that's in Cain is a seed that's in all of us. The anger, the self-seeking, the vanity, the jealousy, the lovelessness, the pride, the craftiness, the deception. It lives in us all. And the damage that he does with it is damage that we're all capable of doing. Going back to that question, why was Cain so angry? You know, it says the Lord had regard. He celebrated. His face shone and it smiled on Abel, but not on Cain. And you just wonder, right, what happened to cause Cain to become infuriated? You, know, you just wonder, right, was he... Rejected and he couldn't take it? 
Is his identity based on his name that he's the producer, he's the performer, he is happy as long as he's getting his way and he's on top and he's up front? We were joking in the men's Bible study. Someone said it, it's classic older brother activity. As the firstborn older brother, I kind of resent that comment. But looking at the, the, what's being celebrated in the younger sibling and the older one can't handle it. Maybe. But somehow... The younger brother is getting praise, and oh, the older brother doesn't like it. You know, in one sense, you get almost sorry. Why are you angry? This has nothing to do with you. You know, God even says, look, if you do the right thing, then you have nothing to worry about. In one sense, I'm celebrating what Abel has done. Why are you mad? Why are you even thinking about you at all? And of course, that's a question. One of the things that reveals is how do we respond when someone else gets the thing we want? gets the praise we seek, gets what we desire. And the way Cain responds to God, it's, it's almost unbelievable if it wasn't here in the Bible. His first, he lies. God asks, where is your brother? He says, I don't know. Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> you do know. He lies, and then he's sarcastic, and he says, am I my brother's keeper? That word is keep. It's the same word that Adam was given to guard and keep. The garden, am I the one who's supposed to keep baby boy? And the interesting thing about this question is like, wait, wait, are you really asking that question? Do you want the answer? The answer is yes. This is a society of primogenture where the first son has both blessings and responsibilities. His responsibility is the care and and caretaking of the entire family. Uh, Do you want the answer to the question? Yes, you are your brother's keeper, actually. It'd be like yesterday, Cynthia was helping at Lunar New Year, and she was gone uh, for about 14 hours. And if she came back home and looked and said, where are the boys? I don't know. Why are you asking me? Am I their keeper? Uh, Yes, actually. Yes, you are. And that's the same thing with Kate. Yeah, yes, you are. And then not only does he lie, he's sarcastic, he's abdicating his responsibility, but he's also deaf. Notice there's something he doesn't hear. See, any of you who have siblings, you can kind of imagine, it's almost like, um, you know, you got one sibling who's like crying in pain and blood's coming down their forehead, and the other sibling is like holding a stick, eyes wide, and like, it wasn't my fault, I didn't do it. I, I'm like, he, he just ran right into the stick, and I was just, hunt- and like, their excuse is getting drowned out by the reality of this cry. And all of you parents know who, who, you, who you side with. And here, like, he's making these lame excuses, and it's being drowned out by the reality of the cry of the brother's blood. And you don't hear the intonation, but I just wonder when God, when God says in verse 10, what have you done? I just wonder, how does it boom? Is it enough conversation, enough of, of this nonsense? What have you done? God doesn't ask that because he doesn't know. He doesn't need information. He wants Cain to own and admit, what have you done? God booms, and then he says, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And what we see is every act of injustice, 
Every sin, every act of anger, the image here is that it pollutes the ground. It's a toxin that's poured out into our soil, and every single one of them is crying out to the Lord for justice. And could you imagine? Cain is deaf. He can't hear them. Could you imagine if you could hear all of the cries right now in our world for justice? You know, there was a moment we had four kids in five years, and there was a moment where four little mouths were all crying out, Mommy, 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 crying out to Mommy. And just those four were enough. I mean, Cynthia bore it with more grace and uh, equanimity than I did. Want to drive me crazy. They weren't even calling out to me. Could you imagine all the voices crying out to God? And what are they crying? They're saying, oh God, one of your creatures, one of your image bearers made in your image has been destroyed. The work of your hands has been vandalized and violated. Oh God, the work of your hands has been broken without cause. Oh judge of all the earth, the innocent has been slain. Will you let it pass? And oh God, the blood that was shed was shed by an innocent one for you, worshiping your holy name. This is the first martyr, and the blood is crying out. And the question is, is there any sound that can silence the cry of the blood? Is there another sound? And you just start pulling on the threads because there's a, there's a true second Adam a true older brother who's going to come and not inflict punishment on his siblings, but he's going to bear it in their place. There's another innocent sufferer who the writer of Hebrews says his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His blood is crying out for justice, but his blood is also crying out with forgiveness and his blood is crying out saying oh god not just one of your creatures has been slain but your very son god of god light of light lord of lords and he was the truly innocent one the perfect innocent son and he has been slain in your service and he has given his blood has now been poured out and it can do what even the cataclysmic flood couldn't do. It couldn't clean these stains. It's only the blood of another that can clean these stains. And now there is this fountain filled with Emmanuel's, it flows from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners, when they plunge beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains. And the dying thief, he rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, even though I am just as vile as he, I can have all my sins washed away. And we can celebrate, oh, dying lamb, the precious blood will never lose its power. The, the cry will never lose its power until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. So as we transition into our time of communion, I ask Cynthia just to sing that song, sing it a cappella or sing it with Paul, just to help just wash those words into your heart as we prepare to receive the testimony of his broken body, the true bread and wine given 
for the forgiveness of our sins. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood to see. 